Okay, today I'm in Birmingham with Chris Pitt. Chris, thanks very much for agreeing to talk to us today. Gotcha. Um, so you're a man steeped in racing, uh, based in the sprawling metropolis that is Birmingham, but Birmingham was where you first went racing. Yeah, back in June 1962, I absolutely loved it. The top jockeys were there, Doug and Eve Smith, Greville Starkey, Duncan, Keith, Willie Snaith, and it was wonderful. We, I remember catching the bus from the Hall of Memory in Birmingham. We got to the track, we just missed the first race, and the second race was a four-horse seller, won by a horse called Miss Murray, ridden by Davy Jones, who was mid-50s by then. But it could have been the Derby. It was just, none of the horses ever won a race again. But it was just great to be there. From the very moment I stepped on the course, I loved it. And what was it for you that really hooked you? It was, it was the horses and the jockeys, particularly the jockeys. Um, always more into them, really. Uh, I remember back in, in 1962, my mother uh, wrote to a guy who was my favourite jockey at the time. His name Keith Temple Nid, probably because of the unusual name. And... Um, she wrote to him at Birmingham saying, uh, you know, please could, uh, she saw what he was riding there, please could I have your autograph? And then he sent me back this wonderful little thing back in 1962 that he'd got all the jockeys at the weighing room to sign and they were Brian Taylor, Joe Stein, Edward Hyde, Greville Starkey, Dennis Ryan, inside Jeff Lewis and Bruce Raymond, Sammy Milbanks, and there we are. 1962, all the best AK Temple Nid. And, I mean, from then, uh, it, it was all about the jockeys. I, I do remember um, back in the, about November 61, when I, my first year really getting stuck into this, was when I'd got used in the summer to Piggott, Breezley, Mercer, and suddenly these names, Winter, Biddlecombe, Gifford, started appearing. And I said to my mum, who are these people? And she said, oh, they ride over jumps. And from that moment, oh, they were my heroes. So we're going right back to the beginning before yeah. we get right stuck into the racing again. You uh -huh. were born on Easter Monday, uh, in 6th of April, 1953. I'm told the midwife had somewhere else to be. <laughs> it could have been apocryphal. I don't know. I was there at the time, but I don't remember much about it. <laughs> but, um, yeah, apparently uh, he or she was going to Birmingham races the after on the afternoon, being a bank holiday. And um, there was also, a, allegedly, and this is far-fetched, uh, that the, uh, the midwife apparently was named a Miss Bullock. And my mum always maintained that she was the sister of Johnny Bullock, who'd ridden the Grand National winner two years before, Nicole Coyne. Whether that's true, I've no idea, but it's a good story. You're an historian. I thought you'd have delved into that. <laughs> <laughs> now, so you were nine years old when you went to Birmingham races for the first time. Mm. I mean, not many people that are watching this will have ever been to Birmingham races. So give us a quick description of what it was like. It was wonderful. It was right-handed, Marlon three furlong ground on the flat course, Marlon a quarter jumps track on the inner. Perfectly flat, probably the best straight mile outside of Newmarket. You didn't get many false results there because it was a good wide course. Uh, it was great. I used to go on the inside and um, it was just wonderful atmosphere. They had everything there. They had evening meetings, bank holiday meetings, trying to attract the crowds. And they had a creche where you could keep the kids. I was obviously not going in there. I was on the course. And then when the pop music boom started, they had a mound in the middle of the track. And I remember seeing the swinging blue jeans there and... Um, Another band called the McGill Five. So they were ahead of the game in everything, really, uh, in, in having the, the, the pop groups there, the concerts, 
you know, even had sort of ladies' nights, which were about admitting ladies for free. So it, it was well ahead of its time. So I understand it's now under Spaghetti Junction somewhere. Yeah, it is, absolutely. If you know where to look, you can just about find the, the remains of the paddock. But all of the roads around there are named after Derby winners, Grand National winners, or famous racecourses, the Cheltenham Drive, Reynolds Down Road. So it, it's quite nostalgic in that way. So it, was, it wasn't closed because it was a failure, just because they needed the infrastructure? The people... <laughs> People who had worked in Birmingham, even the greatest fan wouldn't have said it was the most scenic race course of all time. And and by the early 60s, more people had got cars and they wanted to make it a day out. So they'd go to Warwick and Worcester and Ludlow and Hereford and they stopped going to Birmingham at the same time that the corporation was looking for a site to build 1,500 houses as part of the slum clearance programme. You had a 380-acre site at Bromford Bridge, which was surrounded on part by housing. And so when the council um, offered one and a quarter million pounds for Birmingham, the director snapped the hands off, and that's why racing finished. OK, so, so you were, how did you get into it in the first place? Into racing? Mm. Well, I suppose when betting shops were legalised in May 61, my mum and dad would go have their tanner each way doubles and watch it on the television. And that, I think, is where I started watching it. The first race I really remember watching live was the 1961 King George, where Wright Royal beat the previous year's Derby winner St Paddy. And from then, I was hooked on watching racing and going racing. Now, there's uh, an anecdote you wanted to share that you saw on the TV from uh, Redcar. There was an interesting one, because the ITV often used to cover racing from Redcar. And when they had the straight mile races... Uh, when you look at it now, there are houses directly at the back. But in those days, in the 60s, it was just bare land, fields and that. And for about a year or two, um, whenever there was a straight mile race, there was a couple who stood behind, uh, behind the start in, in the, 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 the land at the back, waving semaphore flags. And Tony Cook, who was the commentator, used to say, well, there's our friends again. I wonder what it's all about. And eventually, about 18 months later, they found out that they'd got friends in London who weren't on the phone, and they were simply trying to relay the news. We're in very good health. Thank you very much. Johnny's <laughs> passed an exam. The cats had five kittens. And that's what it was about. <laughs> now, you, you actually had um, a family connection that was involved with racehorses. I did. My uncle Stan, to who I owe an awful lot, um, he taught me, I think, how to behave and conduct myself around people and took a um, teenage long-haired blockhead that I was and sort of turned me into something else. When I was 11, he gave me a Christmas present. He gave me a scrapbook that he compiled between 1942 and 52. And I still have it upstairs. When I got it, every other Christmas present I'd had before or since paled into insignificance. So I just, I poured over the pages and the articles and they just meant so much. And yeah, he worked at, um, as head man at two important studs. One was at Stetchworth, just outside Newmarket. And I was there in the summer of 64. And I remember Sir Gordon Richards coming to look at the yearlings and Spotted little youth managed to get my photograph taken with Sir Gordon. It's uh, not a great representation, but there's me, horrible little 11-year-old and Sir Gordon. And um, 
then he went to Langham Hall Stud, Tom Blackwell's, where they had some really nice horses. They tended to sell the colts and keep the fillies. Uh, the best they had was a filly named VL, who was second to Byreem in the 1980 Oaks. Should have won. Leicester wanted to ride her, but the owner kept uh, loyal to the stable jockey. Um, they had Princess Eberly, who won the Lancashire and, and uh, Cheshire Oaks. Hunston won the Cheshire Oaks. Jupiter Pluvius, the Chester Vars, the Goodwood Cup with Richmond Fair. So they had some really good horses, two that were placed in the Guineas in the 70s. And going there and seeing these horses as foals and as yearlings, I mean, that was just tremendous. Your memory is amazing. Well, it's something when you, when you grow up with these things, you know, it, it just uh, it's part of you. You absorb it rather than learn it. I think. Yeah. Now you told me that your um your racing hero when you were growing up was somebody we wouldn't have heard of. So I'm assuming it wasn't Sir Gordon Richards. It wasn't. Um, me being me, uh, when I saw the list of jockeys in the papers, um, ITV used to cover a lot more northern racing in those days. And the, the jockeys like Stan Hayhurst and Jerry Scott and George Milburn were terrific. And there was this one guy who'd maybe get one ride a fortnight and he'd have a winner a year or winner every two years. And those were the sort of people that I latched onto. So this particular guy, um, I kept a record of every ride he had. Uh, what I didn't know was that the best of his career was behind him. And in the 50s, he'd won the Ida Chase, been placed in the top of and when in 1965 he actually had a ride in the Grand National on this 100 to 1 no hoper whatsoever, um, the, the rest of the Grand National just meant nothing to me. I just wanted to see how he got on. And when he actually was in the lead over about a third fence, and I thought, wow, this is fantastic. Needless to say, capsized at Beaches and brought down four others with him. Um, and I followed his career up until he retired in 1968 and thought, know more about it and then through a series of surreal circumstances in a way um, I went to this particular sporting event called the Kipling Co to Derby one year and this lady introduced herself and said she was getting married to this fella and um, I said well isn't that the son of La and she said yeah and then following her produced a long time gone for me to sign to him and I thought, I've got to meet this man and Mary and I went up to Wigton where he lived and we met him and I presented him with a list of not every winner he'd ever had, every ride he'd ever had. And he said, would you like to see my scrapbook? I was telling him who the horses were. And it was that he'd ridden 33 winners in 13 years. He was amazed that anyone would ever remember him. But for me, he was an absolute hero. I made sure that he was a chapter in my book, Go Down to the Beaten. And we... Went up the stayed several times. We exchanged Christmas cards and everything. And he was someone that, he, when he'd retired, he worked in a tyre factory for 20 years. He didn't regard himself as being anything special, but I did. And it was quite a sad end in as much as I spoke to him in July one year and said, look, I'm holding a Grand National Preview next year in April. Well, please, will you come down? He said, I'll think about it. I went to ring him again in September and about a week before received a letter saying that he died in tragic circumstances. And that hit quite hard. But, um, you know, I haven't even mentioned his name. Um, people will be able to look it up. His name was John Hudson. Wouldn't have meant anything to you or most people, but he was a hero to me.
Right. So that's uh, obviously means a lot to you there. Mm. Um, right. So we've got to move on. When did you decide that you were going to make a living out of your passion? I never did. It was never an intention. Um, I worked for British Telecom for over 30 years. Did everything from arranging driving instructors' programmes to putting in pay systems to selling land and doing um, disputes over territory and everything. Everything by how to mend a telephone. And then when I finished that uh, with them in 2000, um, did something else for a few years, by which time um, Boss Magazine had been... Mary, my wife Mary, had taken over as the editor and I just became the feature writer through having done occasional articles prior to that. Okay, so you've sort of broke into it while you, after you finished with the uh, telecom, but you were already doing stuff before that. Yeah, I'd, I'd already published uh, A Long Time Gone. That was 1996. 1996, that's yep. right, before I left BT. But all the other books have then been since 2003 when I decided that I could set myself up as a freelance writer. Okay, now you've described a lot of um, long gone race courses. What what was your debut and now renowned work? Uh, a long time gone. Um, was it inspired by the fact that you were only able to enjoy Birmingham for three years? Not specifically. It was more about an old Shropshire race course called War, which had closed two years earlier in nineteen sixty three, and I can't even remember how it happened. But I ended up interviewing the former race course manager at war and turned it into an article that was published, I think, in Boss magazine about 1981-82, first thing I'd ever had published. And then former racing club, which I will come on to later, which I formed a few years later, I just started writing an occasional piece in the monthly newsletters until someone said, why don't you turn this into a book of some sort? And that's how A Long Time Gone came about. Um, it, it took a long while to write. It took about seven years to write. The interesting thing is it very nearly didn't see the light of day, you know, and um, it's quite an involved story about that, but uh, essentially it, inv it, it uh, involved a furtive meeting in the service station on uh, the M6 motorway one day when uh, the original publishers had gone bust and they were handing me all the stuff um, prior to the receivers coming in the next day. Otherwise, there'd have been no texts, no photos, no plans. The lot would have gone. So uh, lucky to ever come to, to see the light of day. OK, Chris, we need to know a little bit more about uh, how a long time gone nearly wasn't even there, let alone gone. Yeah, I was in Australia visiting a friend and I got a phone call saying, um, oh, uh, from the publishers, oh, we've gone bust, which wasn't very good news. So as I said, I, um, I ended up meeting them on the M6 and got all the stuff back. And then Timeform got to hear about it, Jeff Greetham, and invited me up there and, and liked what he saw. And um, that they agreed to publish it. He said, have you thought about the cover yet? I said, no, not really. I said, oh, by the way, there's a few um, old race cards I'd like to include just to, to pad out the, the blank pages. And suddenly we looked at each other and thought, yeah, race card covers, that's not a bad idea. And so the next thing you know, Timeformer designed it with all these old race courses from Manchester and Buckbastley and Lanark and Hurst Park. And that's how we got the cover. Now, when you did this book and when you researched it, in 1996, I don't think there was even an internet, was there? 
there was no internet and that's the thing um I, I wonder how i did it because it was all about visiting or calling um county record offices or local libraries or national or provincial newspapers to get the photos so uh, you know w when i look at it now i think well yeah i mean there there have been other books written on that some of them um more, more detailed and perhaps perhaps better but when i think about it that wasn't a bad effort no and that's i mean everybody looks at that as the work now don't they it seems to be the the seminal thing even yeah. though i've had about seven books published since then now, and no offence meant by this at all, no. the next question, mm. but you've been happy to write books on what would appear to only potentially attract niche audiences. So uh, Chandler's Leap and 300 Years at uh, Pitchcroft being two that I, I saw. I'm sure they're very interesting, but they are specific for you know fairly unique sort of places. Um, is it your, well, would you agree with that, first of all? Is it? Does your own personal interest have to be piqued before you embark on a project? Oh, yes, it does. Um, the niche part, Mary summed it up very well. She said, find a niche and fill it. Um, with the Pitchcroft book and Chandler's Leap, um, I was invited to write those by Worcester and Warwick. Um, Warwick Andre Klein um, loved a long time gone. It's his favourite book. He was the manager there then and had taken it all around the world, so it didn't take an awful lot of persuading. Um, but... Yeah, um, the history of those courses being local as well. They were easy to visit and source the information from libraries and such. So, yeah, um, the interest does have to be piqued before I want to write something, yeah. And when, going back to a long time gone, did, where, did you actually sort of go and try and find where these places were? Yeah, for a good number of them. Not every one, because some of them were... Uh, you know, you're just impossible to find. But there were, you know, some wonderful days at Alexandra Park and Y and Lewis and some of the more recent ones. I went point to pointing at Buckfastley and at Lincoln, went to the last day's racing at Lanark. So yeah, um did do quite a few of those. See the Buckfastley, the stand's nearly fallen into the field now. It's, uh... Yeah, I know. I, I went and saw it and stood stood by it and it was uh, a Marie Celeste, you know, as if to say we don't want you there anymore. Now, I'm interested, I must have, um, behind the title of your book on the Grand National, go down to the beaten. Now, what does that mean? It's a line from a John Macefield poem. Go down to the beaten who have come to the truth that is deeper than sorrow and stronger than youth. And that's what I had to do. I had to go down to the beaten, the people who didn't win the race, who'd failed to win it. But the interesting thing there was that the difference between what they thought of a success and failure. A jockey who'd been second in the race three times, it was terrific thrill, you know, and um, another guy who'd finished second beaten half a length, it was the worst moment of his life. And I think that, um, how can I say it, 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 uh, it, it defined what is perhaps success and failure. But also that book, and it's my favorite book, um, when these people die, when the jockeys die, their stories die with them. You need to have someone to record that. There are 39 stories that don't get told in the Grand National. The winners does, the others don't. And by process of elimination, there's got to be something like some great stories. Yes, I had the John Frankham's, Peter Skewdemore's in the book, but I had the Keith Barnfield's and the Peter Collis's, people that no one would remember or hardly anyone remember. But they had a story to tell about their day or days riding in the most famous race in Britain. 
and you've got to record those. You just have to have them. And did you go back through the form book and look for the most unlucky, or was it just was it just a case of who was available and who'd run in, uh, ridden in the race? With the nineteen forties, of course, it was a very limited field as to who was left. But I was very lucky in getting people like Bill Lay and Bill Denson and Glenn Kelly, a um, lot of whom just aren't around. You know, they'd, they'd all died by the time that the book came out, pretty much. Um, so it was getting them and. You know, Glenn Kelly, how he, he's absolutely convinced that he won the, the Cheltenham Gold Cup on Green Oak, where the result went to, Michael, uh, to Martin Maloney. Um, just great stories. Yeah, because people only remember the victors. Of course, that's it. Um, now, is there a name for someone that has visited every race course in Great Britain? Is there like a, a club name or something like that? Because you, you are a member of that club. Uh, it's The club's growing all the time. Is there a collective now? No, I don't know. A risk, maybe. <laughs> um, so, why did you embark on? Why did you embark on uh, on that particular challenge? Um, it was. I didn't ever set myself a time frame for doing it, and but I always knew I'd do it eventually. So it was just something that I, I just wanted to do. I think I finished the set at Faken in nineteen eighty-five, um, but it was never. A, a desperate challenge. It was something I knew I would do in time. Was it sort of you, you realised that you'd done so many and thought I might as well finish the rest? Yeah, well, not even that. It's just I was always going to do it. Uh, it just, I would do it as and when. You know, when I was working, I'd got a, a job to do, so I was fitting it in there, there and then. Um, so, yeah, it, it, so it, it, didn't, um, it didn't absorb me totally. I wasn't sort of saying, I've got to get this done as soon as I can. And did you ask you did it when racing was on? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Had to be when racing was on. Were there any, any particular courses that sort of struck you sort of specially? <sighs> they were all so different. There were, I mean, you know, places like Sandown, you know, major tracks right down to you know, Market Raisin. But I always find you get a very big welcome at the Yorkshire courses. You know, so I love going there. Ripon is a particular favourite. It's a wonderful little course. You know, they do a great job there. It looks immaculate. And amazingly, you've nearly done all the Irish ones as well. All bar three, Limerick, Listowel and Thurless. And the first two of those I'm going to be doing in June this year when I go on a, a trip for a couple of weeks with an old school friend of mine who now lives in Australia. And so that will just leave Thurless, which, of course, isn't the easiest. It's the only race on alternate Thursdays in midwinter. Um, but eventually that will get done. And are there any of those that have been a long time gone that you've been to and they're no longer there because there's a few Irish tracks disappeared? I went racing a trolley before they closed that down, but that's probably the only one that I can think of. I'd like to have found Mullingar and Tuam, but never got round to that. And you also continued, I'm assuming you're not going to try and embark on every race course, but you've done several around the world. Yeah, I've been very lucky. been very lucky indeed. Um... Hong Kong, Macau, several in Australia, South Africa and, uh, and, and, and America. And of course, you know, being married to Mary, who's um, from Boston, uh, done a lot over, uh, over in the States and most of the major European countries. Any, any particular ones that stick out that were sort of unusual compared to what we're used to? <laughs> um, Mary was one sass, which was the most, which one impressed her most. And, and I think she quite rightly said sort of shot in well the Hong Kong courses um so yes that's um 
uh, I've been to Valkapada Beach Spirit in, in, in uh, the Czech Republic, but they've got a sort of smaller version at a place called Rotslav in Poland, which is in the west side of Poland. Uh, the whole place actually is quite interesting. It's a university town, Rotslav, and I think used to be part of East Germany until it was de-Germanised after the war. But they've got a little mini taxis fence in front of the stands there. And, oh, tremendous little atmosphere. 1908 grandstand and that. Rutzlaff, love to go there. And Murano, which is probably the most beautiful race course I've ever been to, with the, surrounded in the valley by the Dolomites. Ah, just magic. Really good. Um, and you were, you were, or still, are you still involved in BBC Radio? No, no, not for several years now. I um, went on holiday once and heard someone I put in for the job and I thought he's better than I am, so we ended up doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and did that get you, were you re reporting from the races? No, no, I'd be in the studio, be in the studio there. Yeah, there were, you know, a couple of events spring to mind, actually. Um, one was the, the Void 1993 Grand National when I'd just gone there to preview it and maybe give a short synopsis at the end of the race. And, of course, with all the problems that happened, the full start of the whole lot, you know, they said, stick around, don't go. And I think it was about the first time that uh, the five o'clock sports report contained on BBC Radio WM more questions about the Grand National with people ringing in than to talk about the matches that had happened that afternoon. And I remember at the top of my head, I just suddenly thought... They were saying, why can't you use stall starts for the Grand National? And it just came to me and I said, because it would be like a, a running jump for a cross-channel swim. And, and <laughs> that, I got a lovely letter from them saying, thanks for getting us out of the trouble. But I think the most embarrassing one <laughs> was 1992 and they wheeled me in on a Wednesday afternoon to preview the Derby. Uh, one by Dr. Devious, and I walked in there to the studios and they said, oh, um, go in there in a couple of minutes. Um, he's interviewing um, this lady, Maria Whitaker. Uh, who's that? Said, the Sun Page 3 girl from 1991 or something <laughs> like that. So I went in and she was plugging a book and everything, and she was very nice. And uh, Anyway, then he turned to me and got a preview at the Derby and I gave him the usual blurb and Maria said... Uh, I'd been given a tip for a horse quite named Dr. Devious, and I liked the name. And to which I replied, well, because he's only just come back from a very tough assignment in the Kentucky Derby, you know, and it might be taken a bit more out of him. So anyway, Maria Whitaker is sort of painting her nails and doing whatever, and we're watching the race on TV, and as they come round Tattenham Corner, mine's clearly beat. And about three furlongs out, I said, Dr. Devious is going well, you know, to which she starts to take an interest and of course Dr Devious runs away and wins and so at the end of the day then I've got to sort of explain why it is that the racing tipsters hot tip finished seventh or eighth whereas Maria Whitaker who didn't know the difference between Derby Day and Pancake Day had just got to tip the winner <laughs> so that was an interesting experience. Um, tell us about the West Midlands Racing Club. Yeah, I formed that in 1985 um, with a committee essentially to stimulate interest. So we would um, have guest nights with famous jockeys and owners, trainers, um, members of the media and officials. We'd do stable visits to local guards. We'd arrange day trips to race courses, week-long holidays in Ireland. Um, we'd do competitions and monthly newsletter, everything we could to, to stimulate interest. And we had some fabulous guests in the time from Frankie Dettori and Petro Sullivan, Julian Wilson. So, yeah, we, we ran that for about 30 years altogether. 
and is it is not is it no, not going anymore? No, we we finished it around two thousand sixteen. The membership was was declining, and we weren't getting any new blood coming in. Um, the committee was disintegrating due to various um, moving away or ill health or whatever, and it just came to the stage where, as McCoy said when he retired, I'd rather that we finished while people saying why are you finished rather than when are you going to finish, but. We had 30 fantastic years with it and had wonderful guests, a grand national preview, which wasn't a preview actually, it was a, a reunion and we'd get these jockeys from the 60s and 70s and 80s back, hadn't seen each other for 30 years and they absolutely loved it with the replays of the races they won and it was my way in that sense of giving something back to those guys who've given so much to me. Um, they asked me to go and interview local bookmakers in the West Midlands area, so I'd done that during the during the 1980s and 90s. And then when I left BT, it coincided with, with Mary taking on the role of editor of Boss Magazine. So whereas I'd just done one or two occasional articles, I now became a sort of feature writer, and it was a matter of going um, and interviewing the um, it was essentially it was a, a niche magazine for the off-course bookmaking industry, um, predominantly the independents. So we would go around the country and interview bookmakers and suppliers and uh, PR people like Mike Dillon and Simon Clare. And, and we did that for several years and actually thoroughly enjoyed doing it. We went saw bookmakers in... Uh, in the Channel Islands, and we went to meet administrators in the Isle of Man, and covered all parts of, of Britain from Cornwall right up to the north of Scotland, including the most northerly independent betting shop that um, that existed. It was about ten miles west of John O'Groats. So <laughs> we met fabulous people. You know, we really did, and um, a lot of them sort of remained friends throughout. You know. Great independent bookmakers, independent characters. Um, you know, Ben Keith, just one of them, um, who were who were actually then taking on the major firms and doing it very, very well. Right, now, I suppose that dwindled with the dwindling number of independent bookmakers in the end. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the reasons we finished it about two thousand eighteen because we knew that the number of independents were in decline. Um, they were a dying breed, and because of that, obviously, it was getting more difficult to get the advertisers, which paid for the magazine, as it was, you know, it was it was a free distribution. And the time was right. I think also, you know, I'm not the most technically gifted, and it was becoming a lot of it was becoming a little bit over my head. And we got out, I think, at just the right time. Okay, several times you've mentioned Mary. We've sat right behind us here. Yeah. Um, you got married in the paddock of Mary's local course, Suffolk Downs in Boston. Was it a race day? Oh, yeah. It was an hour before the first race. I had to get one of the guests to hold my binoculars while I got married. Um, <laughs> that, strangely enough, <laughs> wasn't the most memorable day that we had at Suffolk Downs um, because uh, Mary, uh, the big race in, in Boston is a Massachusetts handicap. And... Mary got speaking to Philip Mitchell, who had this wonderful globetrotter running stag, who you might remember. And as he was going to take the horse to America, suggested that the Massachusetts handicap at Suffolk Downs might be a good race to, 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 to go for. 
he'd never heard of the track, he'd never heard of the of the, the race. But sure enough, about three weeks later, came this bit in the Racing Post, running stag will be aimed at the Massachusetts Handicap. And I thought, oh, I wonder where he got that idea. And uh, <laughs> ran there, I think, in 99 and uh, finished second. And then Philip was so enthralled by the and, and uh, by the, the welcome that he got there that he and, and the owner, uh, Richard Cohen, said, we're going to go for this next year. So in between, Mary and I did something stupid we'll never do again. We followed the horse when he went to, to Hong Kong, to Dubai. Uh, we went to Kentucky twice in the space of three weeks, um, all over the place, and came back to Boston in 2000 for the Massachusetts Handicap and won it. And... Mary was primarily responsible for that. Without her, the horse wouldn't have been there. And that was just such a fantastic feeling, you know, when Philip Mitchell then came and said, thank you, Mary, at the end. I know how much it meant to her and how much it meant to me. And I'm assuming that racing brought you and Mary together. You haven't converted her to this extent. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, Mary was professionally involved writing for uh, the New England correspondent for The Blood Horse, which is the major American racing magazine, and also for two uh, local newspapers on racing. So she was very much in engrossed in that. Um, it, it was a long story, which I won't go into about how we got to meet, but essentially Mary came over for Cheltenham in 1996, and um, I, 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 we'd been writing, corresponding for about five years, uh, just sending letters and race cards and that. So I said, I'll arrange the accommodation for you and trips to the racetrack. And, and we met and uh, we very quickly became a couple. So it was great. Really good. 18 months later, we're married. Fantastic. And there's someone else's life that you've sort of changed or you had a hand in changing is um, Stephen Powell, who you both spotted on Channel 4 Racing. Very proud of that. Um, Stephen had written to Tanya Stevenson on the morning line wanting to know what went on behind the scenes. And uh, they invited him when they were covering racing from Warwick one day to come along and they sprung an interview on him. Mary and I saw it. Mary said, this kid's bright. We found he lived in Birmingham. We took him under our wing. We introduced him to Lester Piggott, Brough Scott, Petro Sullivan and said, stick with this because all his friends could talk about was football at school. Um, the upshot was uh, when he was 16, we took him to Boston. Um, he ended up uh, calling a race at Suffolk Downs and um, that sort of got the whole thing started in a way. Uh, called some harness racing when I was taking him up on a Monday night to Rill, to Prince Racetrack. And then um, next thing you know, he's race day presenter at Newmarket, at Huntingdon, wherever. And in 2022 was... Um, promoted onto the roster of professional race course commentators. I uh, hasten to add, he has done this purely through his own ability. We were able to give him the first step on the ladder, which we're very, very proud of doing, but he's done it all himself and it's just a great joy to us. Fantastic. Because I think actually, um, Simon, that young people have got to be encouraged to come into the sport. There's one thing that annoys me more than anything else. It's when you have family fun days and family fun days comprise bouncy castles, face paintings. And I'm saying to the clerks of the course and the managers, where are the people letting them try it on collars? Why can't they paint their own collars? Why can't you have for older kids someone trying a race commentary? Why can't you take them a bridle or a saddle and show them how things work? And the majority of them look at me as if I've come down from the planet Zog. But that for me is how you get them interested. You've got a captive audience there, entertain them with racing. 
Absolutely. Um, and entertaining people with racing is what you've done, but through words, um, your latest book, Let No Memories Fade, which I've been reading on the train. Oh, for, yes. Thoroughly Thank enjoyed it. Heroes of the Go Cup. Yeah. Uh, so it's 100 years, basically. Yep. Anniversary. So that was obviously why you decided to write it this year. Um, it's not chronologic. It's not written chronologically as such. There's lots of little bits to dip into personalities, horses, events. Um, what you know? Why did you decide that format? It definitely works, in um, my opinion, anyway. It was Andre Klein, um, the assistant general manager at uh, Cheltenham, who invited me to write it, having been at Warwick when I. I um, compiled the history of Warwick races and it was his idea you know he said I don't want it chronological and I thought well neither have I because other books have been done on that so we wanted to include obviously the great horses the great races the owners trainers jockeys but also the side things such as the tv coverage the history of where the gold cup was made the history of sponsorship the view from the clerk of the course from the general manager what it was like to breed the winner uh, 100 things, different things, roads and pubs named after winners, 100 different things to do with the Gold Cup. And that's what I think uh, makes it such a, a different and diverse book. And we, we talked earlier about um, a long time gone was done before the internet. Now this is done with the internet. Is it a lot easier now to do your research? Uh, yes, it is. I mean, luckily, I've got quite an extensive library with form books and that. But um, we also had a subscription to the British newspaper library, which Mary was able to go through and find the, the, the relevant bits. But um, there's also um, just interesting to my, if it's not going off at a tangent too much, my, my favourite author of all time is a guy named Denzel Batchelor, who wrote a book called The Turf of Old. Um, he was a general sports writer, wrote about crickets and boxing and football and rugby, uh, everything. But he did a report on the 1949 Grand National, which is still the best report I've ever read in a Grand National. And I did pay a little bit of a, a small bit of homage to Denzel Batchelor on the back cover. And if you look at a long time gone closely enough at the end of the book, Fastly chapter, there's another little homage to Denzel Batchelor, who was just my favourite author. And how much did you learn? Have you shown us it yet? How much did you um, learn new, new to you that surprised you? I think the biggest surprise was a two-horse, three-mile chase at Sligo, which ended up in a dead heat. And both of the dead heaters went on to win the Cheltenham Gold Cup in successive years. I thought that was unusual. Um, we discovered that when Golden Miller beat Thomond in one of the most famous battles of the Cheltenham Gold Cup, Dorothy Paget that morning had been stuck in Germany, managed to get a flight over and then another flight from Croydon or wherever it was and got to the race course about 15 minutes before the race. Little things, little I didn't know that moments. That's what I wanted to include. And what are your favourite bits from it? I, I, either your own memories or memories that you've dredged up from uh, the history books? Uh, well, from personal memories. The first time I went was 1969 for What a Myth... Um, galloping through the mud when I went with a school friend's dad who was a bookmaker having a bossman's holiday. Uh, I was at um, the 1987 Gold Cup when it was delayed by 80 minutes because of the snow when uh, a friend had given me a, her badge for the day and halfway through the afternoon I was starting to wish she hadn't. Um, but obviously watching them on TV, Dawn Run and Desert Orchid and so on and so forth, I mean, great memories that are just so many, and I think we've, we've captured some of them in, in the book.
I can't speak to you about talking about one of my uh, recent interviewees who I thoroughly enjoyed meeting, Ian Watkinson. You, you helped with his book. Yeah, I mean, I've known Ian for 40 years. I'm proud to say I'm godfather to his son. And um, he was one of the last of the, the diehard ride everything, break your collarbone and go out and ride in the next race sort of people. Um, what he did then wouldn't be allowed now. Medical records would not be allowed. But he, he rode in a golden period and rode horses like Tingle Creek, Night Nurse, Sea Pigeon. And, uh, yeah, just a great guy all round. Now, it did make me laugh when you, uh, you, I asked you for some information to, to help me write my questions, and you told me about a schoolmaster that said to you that uh, nothing good would come of this obsession with horse racing. Uh, I assume he's long gone now, but uh, he, he wasn't a very good judge, was he? Well, I do remember that day, and it was the Monday after the Grand National, and of course I hadn't been seen in school on the Thursday or the Friday. And when he said, what was the Aintree Spring meeting like this year, Pitt? And then said, this obsession you've got with horse racing will do you no good at all. Well, so far it's taken me all the way around the world. I've written half a dozen books. I was radio correspondent, for, uh, racing correspondent for BBC WM, formed the West Midland Racing Club. And most of all, of course, met Mary, like myself, freelance journalist. Um, we've been married 26 years I consider myself extremely lucky, and I'd just love to have met that teacher and say it didn't do me too much harm. <laughs> Good man. Now, was he the English teacher? Uh, he was a general master teacher, actually. I, I do remember him very well, though. I do uh, remember him. The, the final question, Chris. Yeah. Has the next book already been... Have you started on it? I don't have a what you might call winter project going at the moment, so I'm open to offers. Um, I'm told that uh, Wolverhampton celebrates its 200th anniversary in 2025. So if anyone from Dunstall Park would like to approach me, I'm open for business. And anybody watching this in 2030, hopefully you've read it. Hopefully so. And there'll be others in between, I'm sure. Brilliant, Chris Pitt. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Simon.